Australian Research Council-funded National Integrity System Assessment of Australia and public attitude research conducted through Transparency International's Global Corruption Barometer Survey offer new insights into corruption. In this podcast of an ANU seminar, listen to AJ Brown, a professor at Griffin University and board member of Transparency International and Transparency International Australia, review proposals for what should be involved in any new federal anti-corruption reforms. Okay, everybody, well, th- thank you for coming along um, to today's presentation um, from Professor AJ Brown. I'd like to first of all uh, start by uh, uh, acknowledging and celebrating the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, both past and present. So today we're going to have um, uh, AJ Brown, um, who is a Professor of Public Policy and Law at the Centre of Government and Public (coughs) Policy in Griffith University, um, talk about some of the the findings um, uh, uh, into Australian perceptions about corruption and and, uh, models for uh, responding to concerns about corruption in the country. Um, AJ has had a, uh, a long history of um, engagement in anti-corruption activity, including for the Ombudsman Commission and for the, um, uh, the, the um, uh, working with Tony Fitzgerald uh, in Queensland. So it brings a great deal of experience and understanding about the, the topic of which, he, of which he talks about. We're very happy to, to have him here. And my name's Grant Walton. I'm a, um, a fellow with the Development Policy Centre here at the Crawford School. I'm also a director for the Transnational Research Institute on Corruption, which is a, a network of scholars here at the ANU uh, who are um, uh, working to uh, get more events, more understanding about uh, corruption, uh, more discussion about corruption happening here at the uh, uh, at ANU. Um, this is a, um, a part of uh, a number of events that, that we're putting on this year and next year we'll be looking at um, putting on a conference about corruption and Australia's role in anti-corruption efforts next year, so keep an eye out for that. If you're interested um, more, there's a, a, a sign-up sheet at the, at the front. It's got the Development Policy Centre on it, so you can sign up for the Development Policy Centre or TRIC or both. Um, just uh, let us know um, uh, when, you, when you put down your email address. Anyway, without any further ado, I'll hand it over to AJ. Great. Thank Thanks. you very much, Grant. And it's a great... Um, where are we? How do we get my slides up here? Oh, and this uh, this is uh, this should have been part of my so Sorry, about that. that's okay. There we go. That's you're, all right. you're just you're not a part. Of, you're not the ANU. You're not that. You are this. There we go. There we are. So yeah, great. great. So, so it's a great pleasure to be here um, and uh, to be doing this with Grant and the um, Development Policy Centre and Trick. Um, and also, um, who's in hands up? Who's in Kath Hall's class? Um, <laughs> Well, there you go. Well, good choice. Good choice. Um, so um, so uh, it's great to have an opportunity to chat to folks and hopefully take some uh, critical and insightful questions about corruption policy and developments uh, generally. Um, and in particular, what I'm currently um, talking to a lot of people about is the specific specifics of what the Australian government should be doing or could be doing or needs to be doing in relation to strengthening the integrity and anti-corruption infrastructure of the Australian government. Um, But we're doing this from the background of uh, a a number of things. One is that, um, uh, as well as my day job at Griffith University, which is in Queensland, for anybody who wasn't aware, um, um, I have 
had the benefit of um, being closely involved in Transparency International Australia and globally for quite a few years now, um, including now serving on the global board of TI. So if you're not familiar with TI, then um, feel free to ask any questions about TI. Um, but for those of you who are involved in international anti-corruption work or development work of any kind, then hopefully you've heard of TI at the very least. Um, and, um, uh, and we'll understand the significance of, of its role as the global anti-corruption NGO. Um, what um, I was going to do is talk a little bit about the push for a National Integrity Commission or Anti-Corruption Commission or Institutional Strengthening here in Australia, uh, and, but also talk particularly about public attitudes and perceptions of corruption and their relationship to public trust, which actually underpins quite a bit of the development of ideas about what we actually really need and why we need it um, in terms of reform. And that, those two things, the idea of reform, including institutional strengthening and tailoring it or, or it being informed by public confidence and public trust, is not just something that happens in Australia. It's a global, um, it's a global equation, if you like, um, that is going on uh, that affects all countries. And the options for how uh, both how we investigate and assess uh, the state of public consciousness, trust, uh, confidence, attitudes to corruption and its implications for political change and development and institutional development. Um, those things are um, global processes and some of what we're doing is informing what might happen um, globally. So I'll rattle through a bit of both of those things, the National Integrity Commission uh, push, if you like, um, and the options paper that we've just put out, which you've, most people have now got a summary of, uh, but also along the way then come back to this question of what, what's driving this sentiment in terms of public understanding and public perception, and you'll see some of the international links there. Um, so the, the, this debate about uh, a, an anti-corruption commission for Australia or a federal government anti-corruption commission has been going on for quite a while. Some of us have been involved in it for a long time, and it's certainly coming to a head at the moment, which is why we produced uh, this particular options paper. Um, and I'll come back to the options in a moment, but just to give you a sense of, of the context of why we've come up with it and who, when I say we, who we are, um, the, this options paper is a product of an ARC linkage project, Australian Research Council linkage project, which, which involves not just Griffith but also Flinders. Some of you might know or remember Adam Graycar, um, who was here at ANU, who more recently has been at Flinders, who's part of our team. Um, and a number of state-level integrity institutions uh, and Transparency International Australia as a partner. Um, and what, we, what we're doing is conducting what's called a National Integrity System Assessment. And those of you who are involved in international policy or um, international uh, level research or law reform or institutional reform or thinking about it, um, it's worth being familiar with this because this is a, 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 an international methodology that Transparency International has been developing and, and rolling out in progressive evolutions, sort of, uh, evolutions of it um, for, for a couple of decades now. And the whole idea is actually, and this is quite critical to thinking about a federal anti-corruption commission or any specific type of reform, the whole idea was actually a response to the many, many countries in the 1990s where corruption was being identified as a problem. The World Bank was in there. Uh, there was there was pressure to say, oh, what are you going to do about corruption? 
And very often, a lot of countries' reaction is to say, OK, well, we'll pass an anti-corruption law and we'll set up an anti-corruption commission. Bang. Uh, and the whole idea of uh, a national integrity system and assessing the governance system of a country or a jurisdiction in order to see, well, what really is needed in terms of uh, development or institutional strengthening was a reaction to that to say it may not be a silver bullet solution here in terms of one institution or one law. Every country's already got some sort of a system, whether it's um, just, um, <laughs> just close that. Um, every country's got some sort of a system, whether it's you know strong, weak, whatever shape it uh, shape it's in, um, and therefore. Um, any reforms need to be designed in the context of that system. So hence this whole idea. So it's, there's a whole lot of processes and associated institutions that, that need to be taken account of when thinking about, well, what do we need to do to strengthen any system in terms of its resistance against corruption or its ability to deal with corruption or its ability to prevent corruption, let alone pursue integrity, which is a, actually a separate question. Um, so there's a, there's, a, there's a background to this in terms of... Um, the national integrity system methodology, and some of us, you know, including Grant, we, you know, we we uh, we argue over uh, in a in a pleasant way um, over what um, you know what works and what doesn't, what's good or bad about any of these kinds of international methodologies, because none of them are sort of value neutral. They've all got um, baggage and history which needs to be taken into account. Coming back to it, so that's the context of why we're looking at the Australian government federal level integrity system in particular, um, and this question of a, of a national anti-corruption body or something. Um, then, so coming back to the to Australia, the part of the context is that um, there has been growing sort of a growing feeling, if you like, internationally and domestically, that uh, Australia hasn't been keeping up with uh, with trends in terms of its um, uh, profile in terms of its resistance to corruption and uh, and exposure to corruption forces. So many of you are probably aware of Transparency International's annual Corruption Perceptions Index. Um, happy to take questions about that. Uh, it can sometimes be controversial, but um, but uh, what we know um, with some degree of confidence is that Australia's reputation in terms of uh, a, a reputation for for official corruption or levels of it or exposure to it has been falling um, since the revision of the CPI methodology that, in, that led to the, to the sort of current baseline in 2012. So what was really interesting, there was a matter of public importance debated in the House of Representatives yesterday on whether there should be a national anti-corruption body yesterday afternoon. What was, it was very interesting to hear the Attorney General say it's okay because we're still in the top 20 of countries. Um, and what, what's interesting is the reason why people are saying, oh, it's okay because we're still in the top 20 of countries and we've always been in the top 20 of countries around the world is that um, up until relatively recently, we were always actually in the top 10 of countries and uh, we've now slipped out of the top 10 and appear to be out for a little while. Um, and, uh, but that, apparently that's okay because we're still in the top 20. So that's the key thing, which is fine until... In fact, we end up only in the top 30, and then, uh, then um, so, uh, so, so there is um, an interesting uh, sort of perception out there. What's interesting when, it, when I come back to talking about uh, perceptions of corruption and what people think and what it means and why it's significant 
is that in the same time that we've fallen um, eight points and fallen out of the top ten, uh, there's one country which is other countries of have, have, uh, of the top uh, the top of the CPI have moved around a little bit, but one country that actually has got done the reverse and climbed from just being in the top 20 back into the top 10 and gone eight points in the other direction at exactly the same time is the UK. Um, so and uh, and it's so it actually gives a really good counterpoint to to thinking about okay well what um, what do you need to do to actually climb back up the CPI as opposed to falling on the CPI. Um, and, um, and we can come back to that and talk about that. But it's not, a, it's, not, it's, it's not guaranteed that you have to slide or just stay the same. You can actually rise, and lots of countries do. Um, so this whole question of, um, of should we have a National Integrity Commission or a National Anti-Corruption Commission at the federal level is a, is a very real one now because of the fact and heard some people talking about this before, um, the opposition has actually committed to creating a anti-corruption body or a National Integrity Commission if elected at the next election. That's a very uh, significant political step and so there is a real uh, examination of what needs to be done at the moment in terms of strengthening the system with the government still considering the results of a Senate Select Committee inquiry last year on, on um, what needs to be done to, to strengthen the system. Um, and we know that, um, and this is probably not surprising, that there is public support out there for the idea of creating some kind of national anti-corruption body. Um, and one of the things we, and so I'm starting to turn here to now to back to sort of public perceptions in Australia, domestic public perceptions. Um, uh, one of the uh, things we, uh, we now know is that that support is not... Um, completely um, sort of transient or, or, or ephemeral or um, previously people had for, for a number of years had asked uh, samples of, of opinion polls in Australia you know every basically a question along the lines of every state in Australia now has or is soon going to have a federal anti-corruption body only the federal government doesn't do you think the federal government should have one um, and so for anybody who's who's interested in, who's a political scientist or knows anything about public attitudes or public attitude research, then you sort of think, well, that's great. Um, that, that sort of question produces reliable results that about 82% of people support a federal anti-corruption body. But anybody who does this sort of research, I don't know whether anybody here is into public opinion polling or public attitude research, but the question in and of itself does not really help um, with it in terms of having any confidence as to, to what people really think, because... It's such a leading question and such an obvious answer. Um, so, um, so one of the things we've done as part of our current project is um, conducted quite a large, good national uh, public opinion survey where we did a little bit differently in a sort of a normal research fashion and actually gave people the idea, uh, and this was as part of a much bigger survey, the idea of an anti-corruption body and then the idea that other people, that, that some people are saying it's not necessary, and uh, and then then trying to get a handle on whether people would support it or not. And you can see the results in this slide. You can see that, um, in fact, about 67.4% of people will support it, uh, even and 42.7% of them strongly. Um, when even when told that some people, which is true, are genuinely saying that. We don't need it. We've already got lots of bodies and agencies dealing with corruption. Um, 
So we have a first sort of proper baseline of what the level of public support is, and then we can go um, looking for where that's strong and weak. Um, and you'll, you'll also see from this slide that of, the, of our sample, there's a decent lump of people um, who have worked for government and a decent lump of people who have ever worked for federal government. And it was a little bit telling that that's where the strongest level, the, 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 the biggest concentration of strong support was amongst people who had ever worked for the federal level of government in the, in the sample. So we thought that that was useful to point out to people because it really confirms what we already know. I don't know how many of you are public servants or ex-public servants or aspiring federal public servants, but, uh, but most federal public servants, in my experience, um, uh, you know, are quite conscious that the federal government could well be at risk of exposure to corruption problems just like anybody else. So the purpose for, for mentioning this survey, which I'll come back to in a second, is that this is part of uh, developing our research approaches to how we uh, map public perceptions and public experiences of corruption worldwide, not just for our research purposes here in Australia, but as part of the Transparency International uh, effort. And so although this was a special Australian survey, it's a pilot for future rounds of a global survey, which is called the Global Corruption Barometer, um, specifically to try and plug some of the gaps in our understanding of, of how public perceptions of corruption, experiences of corruption, and assessments about the quality of governance actually all interrelate, because, um, because it, so the connections between those things haven't been uh, necessarily drawn systematically before in terms of evidence. They have theoretically, but in terms of actual evidence, um, they haven't uh, been drawn together systematically. So I'll come back to this survey in, in, when I'm talking about um, those, those background issues. Uh, but very quickly, and you can see this for yourself in the options paper, um, what we do is we look at the existing system um, and there's some natural questions about the existing system and its strengths and weaknesses as an anti-corruption system. And then you can keep on thinking in the back of your mind is an anti-corruption system the same as an integrity system? Keep on thinking that question. It's a very good question. Um, and uh, what we come up with in the options paper is a diagnosis of what are the... There are, some, there are strengths in the system, the current federal integrity system, obviously, but what are the weaknesses uh, in the system that uh, would need to be... would be the priorities to address or solve in any kind of institutional strengthening? Um, and so it's, it's uh, an evidence-based approach to uh, integrity reform rather than just saying, well, every other jurisdiction's got an anti-corruption commission, therefore the federal government should have one too. And I won't go through all of these. You can pick up the whole paper. Um, but just to mention a few things, we look at what the effective level of resourcing is as a proportion of public expenditure, both for state jurisdictions in Australia and also a couple of international ones Bangladesh was on here, was part of our other study, but New Zealand is on here. Um, just to sort of see where does the Commonwealth Government fit, um, and it fits down here in terms of the proportion of public expenditure being spent on core integrity, independent core integrity institutions of a number of kinds. Um, and, uh, and where does Australia sit in total as a result of that, um, compared to, say, New Zealand, for example, uh, and then the States. So... Um, so that's some of the sort of stuff that provides a context for, well, you know, are we actually investing in integrity infrastructure to the same level as other jurisdictions? Um, 
The um, the other thing, another thing that is reveals a sort of a set of weaknesses in the options paper is, uh, and, and many people are very surprised at this um, when uh, when it's explained to them, just how fragmented the Commonwealth government's uh, system is for uh, detecting, investigating, uh, dealing with, and even just knowing about uh, misconduct including high-risk misconduct, which is misconduct with high risk of corruption, like conflicts of undisclosed conflicts of interest or nepotism and cronyism and things like that, um, uh, when it, by comparison with all of the states now, um, that most people aren't aware that although there is an Australian public service and Australian public service agencies and Australian public service code of conduct and a regime for, for doing that, that in fact that only covers about two-thirds of all Commonwealth Government employment and that there's everybody else, including the ADF, uh, and uh, about, a whole, uh, about a third of the whole of Commonwealth Government employment is totally outside the Australian Public Service and Australian Public Service Agencies and is not covered by that regime. Um, there are 22,537 of the 239,000-odd uh, Federal Public Servants who are covered by, not just by their agency's own internal misconduct and integrity regimes, but also by the Australian Commission for Law Enforcement Integrity, which is the current independent anti-corruption agency that supervises uh, some functions in a limited number of agencies. And that's the equivalent regime where there is somebody, if there's a corruption issue or a serious misconduct issue in those agencies, then people know they can they don't have to complain within the agency, they can actually go to a body that is, has the job of dealing with those more serious corruption issues, which is ACLI. But the same does not apply for, for the rest of the, um, uh, the bulk of uh, over 200,000 uh, Commonwealth public servants or officials or employees. So that's, it's, we've now, it's not just a question of, of the Commonwealth Government not having such a body, it's a question of there's actually a highly fragmented system that lacks that second level of oversight and investigative capacity that's independent of agencies. Um, and that, that the Commonwealth Government is, is now unique in not having that sort of double level system, uh, which everybody else now accepts is just um, you know, half of the course. Um, the other, another big weakness at a Commonwealth Government level, and this is where Kath and I have the virtue of working very closely together on, um, or I have the virtue of working very closely with Kath on, uh, on whistleblower protection law reform in Australia at the moment, and this has been one of the clearly most, most clearly documented gaps in terms of Commonwealth Government responsibilities, not only for its own public sector, it's got a very quite dysfunctional public sector whistleblower protection regime, but also for the private sector, because if people are blowing the whistle on corruption in government, they may well not be coming from within government themselves. Um, and um, so that's highlighted as well as a weakness uh, in the system to an extent and at a level which is different to the states. Um, and so all, quite a lot of these issues point to the need to do things that are not necessarily just carbon copies of state anti-corruption commissions. But let's get back to um, public perceptions and public attitudes and public trust um, because really that's uh, both uh, what sort of the, the main thing that is really driving um, 
reform imperatives at the moment, but uh, is also something which is really interesting from an international point of view. Um, the, what we know is that confidence in Australia, in government in Australia, has been declining, um, and this is a sort of an international trend that people are quite familiar with as well. But in fact, it's not a uniform trend, and it's not, it's, it's not, globally it's not a uniform trend, and nor is it a uniform trend here in Australia. What's really significant about Australia is the extent to which the collapse in confidence in government is, um, is trackable at a federal government level, much more than at a state government level or at a local government level over time. And, uh, and this whole phenomenon of revolving door prime ministers and this instability contributes to it, um, and a lot of things contribute to it. But the, um, uh, but the big question for us is, okay, to what extent is concerns about corruption and integrity contributing to it, as opposed to other things? And then these things can actually be quite interrelated, but, but that's the real question. So in the, the new Global Corruption Barometer Survey, um, what we've been able to do is identify, and sometimes this has been done in previous surveys to some extent, is identify the extent to which this question about trust and confidence, which is really about, it's not about honesty and integrity, it's just about trust and confidence that a government will do its job, so it's really about competence. Um, how much of that fall, that overall fall in the sense of trust and confidence in competence is influenced by concerns about corruption? And what we know, because the same survey asks about perceptions of the extent to which corruption is a problem and whether it's going up or down, how much corruption is there, we know that between 20 and about 30% um, of the difference, the variation in terms of the responses in trust and confidence is um, lines up with, correlates with uh, people's concerns about corruption. Um, so it's quite useful to be able to sort of put a bit of a finger on it. It varies whether you're talking about public officials and departments or whether you're talking about politicians. I'll come back to that. Um, but what it does is confirm that uh, concerns about corruption definitely do play a role in this overall dynamics of people's trust in government. Um, I, I work, I, I'm quite attracted to the literature that says that there's really three things that all line up to influence trust in government. Um, and competence, people's perceptions of the competence of government of one of them, what it's actually delivering. Um, uh, re simple reliability and stability is another component of trust and, and confidence in government. If you, if you just know that it's going to keep, how it's going to keep working, you can, you can rely on it, even if it's highly corrupt. And people have said that about some, some systems, you know, some, some governments in the world. They might be corrupt, but they're highly reliable. You can have quite a lot of trust and confidence in how the system works. Poland is one, Singapore is another. Um, so, so um, and then the third uh, is, is really honesty and integrity and accountability. Um, and uh, that's the way that I approach it. So we can zero in on, on the role that corruption plays in, those, um, in what's happening with trust. What we also uh, established from the survey is that certainly um, at the same time that trust and confidence in the federal level of government has been collapsing, the uh, perception that federal politicians in particular are corrupt has been rising, uh, and rising quite dramatically. So this is probably the key one, as far as I'm concerned, between 2016 and 2018 when 
these surveys were done, the, um, the proportion of people who believe that at least some politicians, are, federal politicians, are corrupt, uh, shot up from, um, I'm just trying to double check the, what, 60, 60, 60, 70, 76, 76 yeah. um, percent to 85%. Um, and so you can see that most of that is in the people who believe that some federal politicians are corrupt, um, has gone, has more or less doubled. Um, so there's a definite uh, problem, perception problem for federal politicians in particular. Um, and you can think about, well, what does that what might drive that, what types of incidents might drive that, but you don't have to think too long before you can come up with some. On that topic, do you know exactly when in 2018 that survey was taken? Yeah, so it was done in May, June. So pre the, pre, um, the Turnbull meltdown, um, for, you know, the meltdown of the Turnbull government, for example. Yeah. So yeah, that was done in May, June. Um, so... Um, now, the other thing that I um, thought was particularly uh, worth mentioning and that I knew Grant would be interested in, in um, and that is particularly relevant if you've got an international uh, interest in this and, and particularly in, um, in development studies and what's going on in, you know, across a range of different types of countries, is that internationally we've been asking these questions about um, corruption and how many people do you think are corrupt and is corruption a problem, etc. Uh, and then asking people about their experiences of corruption, typically asking them about bribery. And what we find internationally in a lot of countries is that there can be a, quite a high perception that people are corrupt or a perception that a lot of people are corrupt in government and very low bribery rates. And Australia is the classic example of that. Our bribery rate and our survey confirmed it in terms of people's experience of bribery of having to pay a bribe being asked for bribes is, is very low, 2%, 3%. Um, and that varies, I mean, yeah, that compares with countries where that, that figure can be 40% or more. Um, so we know that it's, that it's relevant and, and useful, not always totally accurate, but relevant and useful to ask people about bribery experience internationally <coughs> as part of trying to get a fix on the extent of corruption and the measurement of corruption but we've always had this big gap between perceptions that everybody is corrupt and that corruption is a problem, and in a lot of countries, especially developed countries, with, uh, and, and also other industrialising countries, that, um, that the evidence of bribery is very low. So what's the, you know, what, what, what do we do to explain and, and investigate this gap? So what we did with this survey, and amazingly this was a bit of an international first, was to simply say, okay, you've told us at the beginning of the survey that corruption is a problem. Uh, what is it? What are you talking about? What, what, what's, the, what's the problem that you're talking about? Um, so that it was completely open before getting into talking about anything else. We just said, what is it that is, is the corruption concept in your head that you think is a problem? And so we asked that of everybody who said that they thought, that they thought corruption was in government was... Uh, a big problem, uh, you know, a really big problem, a fairly big problem, or at least a bit of a problem. We didn't ask people who said it wasn't really a problem at all. And what was really interesting was, was we got this sort of breakdown. Um, so this adds up to more than 100% because people identified more than one 
type of problem or issue. People listed out a number of different problems or issues. Uh, but it gives a, a much better idea about what people are talking about. Can I just ask, was it free-form response or was there, were there options available to text? No, so this was a telephone survey. So it's all telephone interviews. Really good interviewers um, and uh, who, um, who ask the question and then probe and just record what people say and then ask a follow-up prompting question and, and sort of try and fully explore whatever anybody is prepared to say provided they don't start going on for hours. Um, and then, then we code that. So it's completely, it, it's effectively the same as a free text. Um, so, um, so this is the result of, of then coding that, sorting that and coding that. And there's more we can do to code it. Working back from the, from the other end, what was, so what was interesting was that the number of people who went asked, well, what, what sort of problem are you thinking about? Uh, who then said, oh, I don't know was 8.7%. So that's not surprising. I, probably, I think you go into good research like this with sort of a, a hunch very often. You might go in with a specific hypothesis, but very often you go in with a hunch and you only really know what your hunch was when you get the result. And, and, I, and that was lower than I would have thought. I would have thought that in Australia, people say, oh yeah, they're all corrupt, they're all corrupt. Yeah, yeah, corruption is a big problem. And then when you say, well, exactly what are you talking about? And then people go, oh, um, so I, I, would have, I would have thought that it would have been safe to predict that that was going to be higher than 8.7. So the fact that it was only 8.7 was a sort of an indicator of something. Then the other thing that I think would be a logical hypothesis is that a lot of people, when they're saying, um, oh yeah, they're all corrupt, There's, corruption's a big problem, could well be talking about almost anything. Uh, and so... Um, so it was really interesting to get a sense of the extent to which people weren't just talking about almost anything that they didn't like about government. So the, the, the percentage of people who actually um, gave some kind of general issue that, that showed that they were disaffected with government, there were policies they didn't like, they didn't like asylum seeker policy or they didn't like this or they didn't like that, and therefore they were saying that government was corrupt because they didn't like policy or didn't like the way that what government was doing. 10.6% um, of people gave a reason like that, gave an issue like that, but they also very often listed other types of issues. So the percentage of people who only nominated that type of general disaffection with, or it could have been quite specific disaffection, with um, government policy um, was only 3.7%, which was, again, was, if, if you'd asked me beforehand, I would have said, oh, it could be quite a lot higher than that. Um, and um, then the other thing was that we were, we were um, uh, was, there was a fairly high probability that quite a lot of people would talk about, be, even though the question was about corruption in government, um, that people would point to corruption that didn't really have that much to do with government. And that was surprisingly low as well. So people who nominated the Banking Royal Commission or you know, the, those dirty banks and etc. Or, and this is often featured in surveys, the institutional response to child sexual abuse, especially post the Royal Commission, um, that um, the, the percentage of people who only spoke about those sorts of issues and nothing else was only 2.5%. And so what we got was um, a pretty good idea that the bulk of people, and this was actually 80, when you, when you combine these people, it's 83.3% of those who answered this question nominated 
a whole range of things that actually fall into some still very big and broad buckets, but things that sort of make sense when, when you're thinking about, well, what is corruption for, for a, in, in government for citizens these days? And so it was, there was a, a very big chunk of people who basically, would, they did talk about bribery and kickbacks and that sort of thing, but um, they were part of a much bigger uh, percentage of people, 42.4% of people, who nominated issues that were um, about undue influence in general, not just undue influence or influence on government decisions as a result of bribery or kickbacks or buying decisions, but lobbying, influence bought by political donations, there was a little bit of unions in there, um, things that were really about undue influence. And, uh, and, um, uh, and certainly the union's got a bit of a mention, but things like property developers in particular business sectors and the mining sector uh, you know, featured much more strongly um, in that sort of pool of, of concerns about uh, what corruption is as a problem. Then the second big bucket was people who basically talked about self-interest, officials who are acting in self-interest rather than in the public interest, but, and, and this was all in quite tangible ways. Um, so fraud, embezzlement, theft, um, nepotism, cronyism, abuse of expenses and entitlements and, and some of the controversies over abuse of um, parliamentary expenses and entitlements are obviously feeding into that. Um, but it was a, like a, a clearly sort of distinct separate bunch of issues. And some people nominated both of those things, but they, you can see that that featured. And then um, a, a significant percentage of people, about 17% of people, nominated issues that were about transparency and accountability and honesty of government. Um, and um, uh, basically governments you know, not doing what they said they would do. So you might see that as being a policy issue, but the way that it was that it flowed out from the data was very much that you know, people see that as a problem in and of its own right, um, uh, rather as an integrity issue uh, or a corruption of policy and politics, um, rather than simply as being, I don't, didn't like the outcome. Um, and so, um, uh, and also things like pork barrelling, pervert, you know, other influences on the political process um, that, um, that lack integrity um, featured in that sort of bucket. So for the first time, and to my mind, you know, to my reading of it, it actually confirmed what some of our other research on public attitudes shows, which is that generally speaking, the Australian population, at least as measured by telephone-based opinion polling, is um, uh, is um, comparatively still pretty well informed and pretty well sort of tuned in on. Uh, in terms of the concept of what they, what they think and what they mean by corruption in government. It does actually relate to government and it does actually relate to the corruption of either specific decisions or general political processes or anything in between as opposed to just being, I don't like the outcome or, um, or something that's unrelated to that. So it actually, what it, what it, it really helps sort of close this gap between what what um, this, this uncertainty that we had in terms of knowing well, bribery is really low, or so we believe, and concerns about corruption are really high, and it helps. Ex it certainly helps explain what 
you know, why that's the case, what, what it is that people are thinking about, what they're concerned about when they're talking about corruption. And it's much, much broader than simply bribery. For a lot of policymakers, I think if you're a politician, you there's something wrong with you if you don't know this in your sort of, you know, if, if, if you can't detect this in the community, then there's something wrong with you. And that's probably true of some politicians. Um, but um, for a lot of people thinking about it in, in public policy terms or in law reform terms, it's actually a bit of an eye-opener to recognise that what is driving concerns about corruption is much broader than hard, fast bribery um, uh, and sort of specific illegal activities that um, we sometimes think about if we're thinking about quite a narrow concept of corruption. Then internationally, that becomes even more significant and important. So we're now hoping that that this will be more of this internationally to flush out, okay, well, what are the differences and the similarities in how people are thinking about corruption? So there's other questions in the survey that help close that gap as well, and I won't go over them. Um, and, um, yep. And I'll just, just let me finish this bit, and then we'll go, then we'll, we can take your question and lots of other questions while we've still got a bit of time. So I'll just finish off by saying um, there's more in there about the options. Um, and in the, in the paper, um, and that part of the upshot of all of this in terms of learning for policy settings here in Australia and the design of an anti-corruption commission, um, we think, is to recognise that setting up what would be a, just an anti-corruption commission is, uh, in terms of rooting out bribery and kickbacks and that sort of narrow sense of corruption in the public sector, is necessary, but it's not sufficient to actually address what people are worried about and what people are thinking about in terms of corruption and integrity across the whole system. So hence, amongst the options, we've actually um, tried to sort of, in a nominal way, sort of do, uh, build in, well, what would be involved in actually addressing some of, uh, addressing some institutional strengthening needs in some of the other areas that affect undue influence uh, political integrity, whistleblower protection, and the rest of the box and dice of the whole system. So what we're hoping is that the, um, as our lovely, happy, smiling, positive political leaders, oh no, he's gone, oh, um, the, um, uh, as they're thinking about these things, that um, we actually broaden the debate out from simply thinking about a narrow version of an anti-corruption commission a la state model and think about something which will actually do the job um, to address some of those issues much more broadly. So that's really it. So now we can, oh, we can go back to your question. To the telephone survey. How varied are the demographics the uh, Well, it depends what you mean by variable. So it's a stratified, well, it's a stratified national sample. So the sample is, is drawn together based on quotas, geographic quotas, 50-50 male, female. Um, and then there's a, it's post-weighted by, doesn't have to be post-weighted by gender, but it's post-weighted by area a little bit, um, but also by education level. Um, and, yeah, so it's sort of as good as you can get. Um, the, the features of, of this sample, actually, I'll go right back to um, the first slide where I started talking about it, was, um, yeah, so it, it's actually, uh, um, we oversampled in Queensland and Tasmania because the integrity agencies there wanted more data, more accurate data from their states on what was going on. 
So it's, it's a large, you know, it's a decent sized sample nationally, it, um, but it's actually stronger in those states. So it really equates to being, in effect, it needs to be interpreted as if it's a 1,200 person national sample, which is sort of like a standard decent size for, for a national sample. So, other questions? Am I allowed to jump in? Yeah. Looks okay. like it. Going to your slide of your proposed integrity commission, or um, whatever, I think that's what you're calling it, I noticed you have the Whistleblower Protection Authority in there. Yeah, yeah. So... Did I forget to ask you about this? <laughs> you didn't run a pass, but that's okay. <coughs> Do tell. That, that's, so you're obviously casting this as a broad net because you're thinking of it as a government... Um, from the federal level, so federal level um, anti-corruption commission, but obviously you're thinking of it with a broader agreement than just the federal government. True, yes. So classic weaknesses in a public sector integrity system in terms of dealing with misconduct and corruption allegations within government or by government officials, etc. And that's quite similar to, a, to, be, to at a state level. It's just sort of looking after your own system. Um, there were actually two areas where the Commonwealth is really quite different to the states in terms of its role in the national anti-corruption framework. Um, and they're sort of listed in the paper. Um, there's a range of areas where the corrupt, where the Commonwealth government's regulatory interests deal with corruption in a much more sector-blind fashion across the public sector and the private sector, um, and also across jurisdictional boundaries within the country. So, uh, anti-money laundering, responsibility for anti-money laundering, and other sort of anti-bribery and internationally related um, uh, uh, corruption concerns and processes is sort of the classic example. State governments don't have to worry about that. When, when FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, if anybody's doing a project on any money laundering, are they? Um, uh, the, um, uh, the Financial Action Task Force in Paris, which um, monitors and enforces or, or supports the international anti-money laundering regimes, uh, when they evaluate Australia's, when they last evaluated Australia's system, they uh, they conspicuously pointed out that when they went asking the federal police about um, about uh, corruption proceeds finding their way into Australian real estate, um, the federal police said, "Oh well, you know, we don't regulate real estate, um, so you have to go and talk to the state bodies about that." And they went and talked to some of the state anti-corruption bodies, particularly the Queensland Crime and Corruption Commission, and the Queensland Crime and Corruption Commission said, "Well, you know, this is not about real estate. This is about." International, the tra international transfer of the proceeds of corruption. This is about illicit financial flows and money laundering. So that's the federal government's problem. So there's a whole range of issues like that where the federal government really knows that it has to pick them up in terms of leadership and coordination and policy settings and things. Um, and that they relate to the public sector, but they also relate to the whole economy and to the business sector at the same time. Foreign bribery is another sort of classic example. Um, so, um, so there's, a, there's a number of issues where the Commonwealth has to work in a much more sector-blind fashion in order to make sure that the country as a whole is staying ahead of corruption risks and challenges that affect both the public sector and the private sector, especially when the private sector 
does so much on behalf of the public sector. Um, and then the other one was whistleblowing, getting back to the point, which is that the Commonwealth has its own public sector whistleblower protection needs, um, but it also regulates business nationally in a way that the states don't have to do. Uh, and the questions about seamlessness between public and private and also between state jurisdictions are things that um, have to be built into the design of, um, of national level uh, whistleblower protection. But also the fact that when it comes to people who are prepared to blow the whistle on corruption that is of transnational or international significance or national significance or corruption in the federal public sector, those whistleblowers are let at a, at a federal level, when you think about it globally, are less likely to only be contained within the public sector. Um, if you, you know, it, it takes two to tango, it takes people outside government to be involved in corrupt, corruption very often with people in government. So, um, so the, um, the fact that there's a need for, um, the, for supply protection in the private sector uh, and, and the recommendations of the Parliamentary Joint Committee were that, the, that a whistleblower protection authority should deal with the public sector and the private sector. Um, and so then the question is, well, okay, well, where should this be housed? And, um, and this is basically one option for where it could be housed um, that could make sense, given that this body should be thinking more broadly than just simply the public sector. Not the only option, but, but um, given that this was a big gap in the system, um, this was a design to say, well, this is one way that that gap should be, should be plugged. So that was the idea. We can talk more about it. So, Hello. Um, I know you just mentioned that, say, between the Commonwealth and the States, there might be different requirements. But to what extent should the law be complementary? Now, um, I'll just say, I'm from Victoria, we have an anti-corruption commission which was almost scandalised in the media because of how inadequate it is, um, whereas, you know, ECAC is a lion, um, and, you know, Margaret Keneen's litigation was national, like, the, almost the opposite end of it. Yep. So, and I know it's probably cultural and government in Victoria that introduced it was looking back to what's happened in New South Wales and thinking, maybe let's avoid that, but... There's inconsistency between the states, and I would have thought for something like this, you'd need to at least have everyone on the same baseline. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think one of the good things about the discussion about a federal body has been that it's it's caused a lot more discussion about well, what is good and bad about the different state models, um, and certainly the principles, the base level principles for what makes for a good anti-corruption body based on state experience. Um, the principles that are in the oppositions, the Labor Party's commitment, for example, are principles that, are, that basically help draw on all of that experience and identify, okay, what sort of like minimum best practice for, for a, a body that you would regard as competent and align when it needs to be, but not necessarily align all the time, chewing up every little, you know, rat or mat. Um, so um, the um, so and those principles, um, you know, quite a lot of people have been involved in in getting those to a point of adoption by at least one side of politics. Um, but the um, um, but I think um, at the same time, it's um, that's only sort of part of the 
part of the whole picture, I guess. Um, the, there are. I don't think the differences between the states. I think there are cultural differences between the states, which which legitimately influence different we didn't have the same history that Queensland and New South Wales had. Yep. Um, but you know, there was a planning minister in the last government that was revealed to have had secret fundraising dinners before approving um, Liberal Party donors um, planning projects. Yep. Yeah, so that, I think it's it's just a question of degree, really. And the, the the one thing we know when whenever anybody goes looking for corruption, um, then it always you know it, it tends to get found in some you know in some way, shape, or form. And very often it gets found in areas where people have previously claimed that there's no corruption. Um, and there's you know there's reasons for that. It's because um, you know it's because people have got complacent or there has been a lack of oversight that means that no corruption has been identified. That means that that's a perfect environment for corruption to, to be able to flourish in because, specifically, because nobody's looking. So, so yeah, so I think, I think what's interesting is um, to think about not just the... And, again, this from a development policy point of view, to think about culture and corruption, you know, you can expand from debates about political culture to all sorts of, you know, the full range of factors that make up culture and how that might relate to corruption. But I think what's interesting is not just to think about trying to get a bit of ha better handle on how corruption and uh, how, how culture and corruption environments relate, but how, how culture and corruption responses relate. Um, because in different political cultures, you don't necessarily have to have the same type of response. Um, and so one response, like in New South Wales, the way that the New South Wales ICAC needs to do business because of the nature of the political culture of New South Wales, could be quite different <laughs> in other jurisdictions where you don't need to, to um, pillory people on the front page of the newspaper every day in order to get your message across. Um, so I think it's, it's, but it's always, it's, I think, some people say, oh, you, you, know, you shouldn't really talk about the relationship between culture and corruption. But I think you've got to talk about the relationship between political culture and corruption to really you know, unpack any of those sorts of things. And should the criminal standard be summary or indictable? And that's been the big issue with Victoria's Commission. Is it always even criminal? So that's the other, you know, that's, that's the other big part of that question. Sorry, there's a question up the back there. Um, yeah, so my question is more around, back to the perception slide, you know, um, where you showed the results from the survey. I guess to summarise that, you could say that you know Australians seem to be more concerned about the behaviour of their politicians than they are about the public officials, based on that survey data. So, I guess my sort of question is: is if the response is this massive agency that's to deal with corruption, but back to before what you were saying around integrity and corruption, couldn't you take those survey results to say actually what we have a problem with here in Australia is integrity of politicians and? Shouldn't we just have a more pointed response to deal with that, you know, political norms and political culture and the factors that appear to have led us to this point where we've got so many people disillusioned? Yes. I mean, I would say you're absolutely right. Um, and I guess that's why the... Um, that's why in fleshing out these options, the, the things that differentiate the comprehensive option, the Rolls-Royce option, from... Um, from the mere option of establishing an anti-corruption agency a la state level, even though they do deal with political you know, corruption and misconduct at a political level to some degree, is to say that we've got an issue here with um, parliamentary standards and integrity in general, 
including lobbying and reform and access and uh, lobbying and access and reform of those things. So there's the question of is an anti-corruption body, which is really this, this is really the anti-corruption body, is that the best way to try and respond to that much more general sort of nuanced um, problem? And my answer would be it might play some of the role, but it's certainly not going to play all of the role in addressing that. And similarly up here, um, we're under this model, uh, what we know from a lot of research internationally, this, this shows up consistently internationally, is that um, people's concerns are very often about the perversion of the political process in terms of finance and campaign regulation and the role of political donations, etc. Money in politics as a general issue, and that can take many forms, but, um, but that we're very weak. You know, we, we can be, we're one of the strongest countries in the world when it comes to fair electoral administration and the integrity of the electoral process. Um, but uh, like many countries that can be strong on that, we're very weak on standard setting and enforcement when it comes to political finance and campaign regulation. So, so this option is intended to actually say an anti-corruption agency can back up a stronger system that deals with those political integrity issues but it can't do it all, and we've got to confront those things head on at the same time. So it's, um, but at the same time, we do need to have stronger anti-corruption capacity as such that deals with things at all levels in terms of actual corruption behaviour. But it's it, that's absolutely the the conclusion that we draw that, that that's not nearly enough. And and to to that's the interesting thing about the the ALP commitment to create an anti-corruption body, there is really nothing directly associated with that, with that commitment which addresses those higher level risks. And I'm sure, and I would hope the Labor Party would say, oh yes it will, yes it will, it'll do this and it'll do that. But the reality is it's not designed to do that, it's designed to, to hit another set of problems. One, one, perhaps time for one more question? Yeah, or two if I, if I say really, I'm really quick. I just had a quick question around the point you made about the passing off of who should be taking care of it as a state or a federal. How would this actually resolve that? Because presumably, if this is focused on federal corruption um, in short term, in you know basic terms, they could still say, well, no, that's sort of the property development example is a classic one. How would this sort of resolve that? Like, uh, well, it's partly the effort that you put into coordination and intergovernmental coordination. I mean, in Transparency International Australia, we've said for quite a while there should be like a, a COAG level, Council of Australian Governments level reference to the same way we would do with things like counter-terrorism and other organised crime response. We actually have a national framework. Most of these agencies are quite willing and ready to collaborate nationally, um, as well as there's a whole separate debate about closing some of the regulatory gaps on whether real estate agents need to report suspicious transactions and things like that. But, um, but um, so just simply having the processes and the resources to coordinate all of that stuff would help fix it because it fixes it in other areas, organised crime response, for example. So, um, so I don't think that's too difficult, but difficult. But at the moment, there's nobody at a federal level who really has either the role or the capacity to facilitate that sort of coordination and. The states will, you know, can do some of it, but they clearly there's so much of it they can't do without the federal government. So, um, so that's you know, that's probably not that big a challenge if, if as long as we identify it and take it on. That will be really um, quick. I promise. <laughs>
I just had a question around the, uh, I like the model, um, and I think, you know, the, the political finance and campaign regulation reform covers the, the sort of foreign influence type of threat. Um, did you find evidence in the survey for um, foreign um, corruption bribery, US-style approach, or, or at least evidence of awareness of that, or the threat? Yeah, no, in, when, when we ask people what is what do you what do you mean by corruption? What's the corruption problem? Foreign influence did actually feature. It wasn't huge, but it did actually feature. And so, and the fact that you would expect it to, because it's you know, been a pretty high-profile issue. Um, so um, uh, yeah, so it certainly does feature. Um, I guess the interesting thing is with the with the Commonwealth government's got this whole new foreign interference regulatory system regime now that it's just putting in place. What's interesting about that is it's sort of like the existing lobbying regime that the federal government's got in place. You know, there's a register of lobbyists and you've got to make everything transparent. Um, so everybody's got to register and disclose and register and disclose and it's, that's a, you know, so it'll be transparent and then that supposedly fixes everything. But coming from Transparency International, um, we can say that transparency is just like the first step. It's the question of, okay, well, you make everything transparent, that's good, and that in and of itself might well suppress quite a bit of corruption risk and, and make otherwise corrupt behaviour less attractive or possible. But what we've got, especially in this day and age, if you think of the US and you think of the Trump administration and you think of so many political regimes around the world now, what you've got is so much corruption in absolute plain sight. Um, and it can't, it's, it's about policy capture and um, a whole range of very clearly open corruption where you can basically, people say, yep, well, yeah, yeah, we bought the decision. What do you expect? We've got lots of money. The decision was there to be bought. You know, it's in the national interest. So what's the problem? Um, so I think that's where we've got to make a big leap now when it comes to whether it's foreign interference or lobbying regulation uh, is is actually moving simply beyond transparency as a solution to actually saying what was what are we actually we're not just trying to make the world more transparent we're actually trying to rid it of corruption um, so um, so that's part of the I think a sort of a generational change that's got to happen in our thinking about the responses to these things before we're actually going to really make any serious traction. Great. Well, um, I'd like you to join me in, in thanking AJ for a fantastic presentation. I do understand that this has already been debated in, um, in, in Parliament, this, uh, these, these proposals, and you're making an impact, and you're just about to rush off to the ABC to promote this even more, so I'm sure we'll hear about it on the airwaves, on TV, perhaps in the news about it. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.